Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. So let's uh, open in prayer. Father, thank you for this night and um, for being here. Pray that uh, as we examine this, your holy word, that you go guide our discussion, our thoughts, guide our our thinking and help us to learn. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be together and to take a look at what you've written down for us to know. In Christ's name, amen. Um, last week, we talked quite a bit about Simon Magus, the whole concept in Acts 8. And um, a couple of big picture points there, of course, that we went over is just because somebody makes a profession and gets baptized doesn't mean technically they're a Christian, right? I mean, here's a man who, from all external um, appearances, at least from Philip's perspective, was a believer, and uh, yet he turned out to be a non-believer. And church history later bears out that he became a great enemy of Christianity and, in fact, was a great persecutor of the church. Um, And then we have the account of the Ethiopian eunuch, a divine appointment. And the big picture item there is what? What's what's the really big picture item with the Ethiopian eunuch? So a cup maybe a couple of big concepts there. Well, he believed what he was reading and he wanted to be baptized. Okay, he was reading Isaiah, right? Yeah, Isaiah. Was he converted as he was reading? I wonder if the Holy Spirit... Well, what do you think? Do you think he was converted as he was reading or... Well, I thought he was being convicted or wanted... Probably being convicted. What was required? He had to understand. He had to understand. So the the important concept there, I think one of the big pictures with the Ethiopian eunuch, is that there is a, a very important and significant place for the preacher or the one who's the witness. This man was reading the scripture, and yet God told Philip, I want you to go down, I want you to speak to this man. All right, explain it to him. And so salvation comes by faith, faith um, in what God has said. Where do you get what God has said? From the word. And it sort of goes back to Romans, you remember Romans 10, how should they hear without a, preacher you know um, we got to be very careful you know when we talk about the whole Calvinism Arminianism debate and all that to never shoot down one branch or the other to absurdity um, God is sovereign God will save whom he will but yet God uses what the word and of the preacher and those are necessary components of the gospel event or the salvation event in somebody's life Don, you're going to... It also shows that as one of the elect, salvation is open to anyone, not, not just the Jews. Yeah. I mean, this guy was an Ethiopian of all people. I mean, he wasn't even of the Jewish nation. And what you see here is is you see in Acts, remember, the ripple effect. It started out in Jerusalem. It's now spreading to Judea. It's making its way up to Samaria. And then you've got this... In fact, in Acts 8... You have the revival in Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth would certainly include 
the Ethiopian eunuch, where he took the gospel back to Ethiopia. All right, and that became many say the foundation of the Coptic Church down there. So you see God bringing his message out, and and what you see in Acts, and this is very important, what you see in Acts is that the gospel, as it's being, as it's making its way throughout the world, it requires, you know, the components that are there are a, the word of God, the scriptures, and a preacher. You know, it requires a preacher. Um, and we need to be very careful to not discount that and to just think, well, you know, if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they're not. So, you know, what's the bother? Well, the bother is God has called us to preach. And in Romans 8, well, not Romans 8, Romans 10, you have how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? All right. So there's a necessary um, place for the evangelist, for the proclaimer of truth. This Ethiopian eunuch was prepared. His heart was prepared. We don't know how that happened, of course. It doesn't give us the background of why he happened to be reading Isaiah or why he picked it up or, or anything like that. But as he was reading it, he was starting to ask questions. And that's when Philip came along through the agency of the Holy Spirit to give him the answers. And you never know how you're going to how you're going to be used of God, you know, to give somebody an answer at the right time, you know, to, to, to be used, to, to be at the right spot to be used. Um, but you need to hear the gospel. That is a very necessary thing. Um, and then in Acts 9, we talked about the conversion of Paul. Here's a man who was the most uh, antagonistic person towards the church that it probably ever was. Um, but he was... What what differentiated him from many of the others? Remember, we talked about this. What made Paul different? He thought he was actually doing God's will. He thought he was doing God's will. I mean, this he was not he was not persecuting the churches because he needed a vocation or didn't have anything better to do. He actually thought he was doing God's will. And under the Judaistic law, technically. Was that a valid conclusion for him to draw? Yes. Well, sure it was. Sure it was. Because you read through the Old Testament, one of the things it says very clear that if anyone preaches uh, a, something other than what is found in God's word, they are to be stoned. They are to be killed. They are an idolater. And, and a city that would do that was to be burned to the ground and everybody killed. I mean, it was a very serious thing to draw people off into idolatry. And from Paul's perspective, what was the message of Christ? It was idolatry. It was heresy that this man would be our Messiah. Until that man showed up and asked Paul, why are you kicking against the goats? And I think Paul was, I, you know, I'd like to ask him when I get to heaven just what was going through his mind there. But he was probably, if like us saying, Oh man, what have I been doing? I mean, it was, it's like, yeah, you ever, we have one of those points in your life where all of a sudden you find out something you thought was absolutely true and right. All of a sudden you find out you're doing the wrong thing and it's like, oh man, <laughs> I'm in trouble. What am I doing? And he was turned around and we talked about how, did Paul have a choice in this calling of God? 
No, he didn't. He was separated from birth. In fact, that's what he says in Romans. I was separated from birth. All right. He didn't have a choice. It's not like Paul could have said, well, you know, this is really great. And um, yeah, you know, I'll take you as Messiah. But, you know, I'm going to bag this idea of being the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm not ready for that. I'm not going to do that. He didn't have a choice. Did you have a choice in your salvation from the eternal perspective? No, you didn't. I mean, you were so drawn that you wanted it, right? But where did that desire come from? It came from the God's work in you. And there's, there, you remember, there, there, there's that paradoxical notion you've got to get in your head that 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 you were chosen, but you wanted God too. You chose Him too. And Paul, as soon as he found out who this was. His immediate response was, what will you have me to do? All right. And this is one. Th I want to just talk about this just a couple of minutes here. Maybe more than a couple of minutes. But when you come to Christ. There is a an abandonment of yourself to his will. If you're truly born again. All right. You, you can't come to Christ and say, you know, hell's a bad place. I really don't want to go there. Heaven sounds pretty good. Um, yes, I'm going to take Jesus as my Savior, but I also want to keep my sin. I want to keep control of my own life. I want to keep, keep in charge. I want to stay in charge. Um, when you see people come to Christ in the Bible, there's a total abandonment to his will. All right. There's none of this um, th this notion here that that I can I can do my own thing. He is my Lord, and whatever He tells me to do, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to 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 quibble on that. And yet, there's an evangelicalism a day. Uh, some who say, "Look, you know, you can just take Jesus as Savior. You know, you can get out of hell, and that's a good thing. And uh, later on, when you get serious about it, you can make Him Lord of your life and Start being obedient. The Bible doesn't know anything about that foolish talk. That's silly talk to the Bible. Can you imagine Christ, you know, giving the invitation, say, you know, I want to stay out of hell and, and all that's a good thing. And I'll do that. But I don't want to follow you. I don't want to obey you. I don't want you telling me what to do. And I want to keep my sin. What do you think his response would be? Leave. I'm not going to take you on. He doesn't take us on that basis. He doesn't. I mean, that's just the way it is, folks. You, When you come to God, you come to God on his terms, not your terms. And the silly notion that somehow you can he can be the savior of your life, but you can just sort of do your own thing and be Lord of your own life. And someday you might get around to making him Lord if you really get serious about things. That's that's a concept that's foreign to Scripture. Now, can you be carnal and and be rebellious? Sure, you can. In fact, all of us have probably had a little spate of that in our life, haven't we? But when you come to Jesus as your savior. There is, in, in, in those who are truly born again, a willing acquiescence to his lordship and his 
rulership in your life. And you may not understand what that means. You may not totally comprehend it. But there's certainly a willingness on your part to do whatever it is he wants you to do. And if that has never happened, you need to go back and say, am I really born again? Am I really a Christian? And that's not to make people doubt their salvation. It's just that's the reality of the fact. And in Paul's case here, the first thing he did when he recognized who Jesus Christ was, his first response is, what will you have me to do? Yeah, what was Christ's response? And you will be told what you must do. Yeah. He didn't give him an immediate answer, did he? No. Why not? Want to think it over, right? Because yeah. what what does Paul need to sort out now? Where in the world did I foul this thing up? How did I get the wrong conclusion? Right? I mean, he was adamant that Christ was an imposter, and he had to go back and completely rethink his entire theological system. And why in the world did I miss this? And I wondered that also because he was such an educated man. Yeah. The, yeah, he had he had some think time that he needed to, and God gave him that time to go back and to mull over what it was. He was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. No, he was a Roman citizen, but he was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of the Benjamin. Remember Philippians. Circumcised the eighth day. Yeah, Don, you're. I really don't think he missed anything. I think he was brought up in strict Jewish tradition. Uh, he he learned everything, you know, from Genesis up to, you know, the Old Testament, and then uh, anything after that would have been pure, you know. But here's here's but see. But see, here's what he had to rethink. And you see this. By the way, you see this in Romans. In Romans chapter 10. What he had to go back and start thinking about is although the Old Testament does not, how do you want to put it, clearly portray Christ, it certainly hints mm -hmm. of it. There, there are enough places in the Old Testament that speak of the coming Messiah, that speak of this, this sin bearer, that speak of the salvation and, and faith in that, he had to go back and he had to rethink all of his interpretations of that. But you know, it's easy enough for us to say that because we've got the New Testament. Right. We have the answer. Yeah. He didn't have it. Yeah, they didn't have that. So I could see when you're yeah. reading that, that you would not. Sure, you wouldn't. Wouldn't I say that's probably in this street to them, yeah. Well, stop. We'll stop and think about it here. You, what were they looking for? They were looking for the coming Messiah who would rule and reign. And there's certainly enough passages in the Old Testament to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But yet, in the Old Testament, you have this other component of the suffering servant. Yes. And they could not fit those two things together. And we say, well, we're a bunch of idiots. They should have figured that out. They're stupid. No, 
They were brilliant. They didn't have the New Testament. We do. And if we were in their shoes, we wouldn't have figured it out either. You know, don't get this idea that we would have figured it out with, well, you know, I would have, I wouldn't have missed Christ. Yeah, you would have. You would have missed him. We all would have missed him. Yeah, and you had, you know, every time you turn around, there's another guy who says he's Christ and here's Christ. And, you know, it, the, the point is, we would have missed it. Let's not be too hard on Paul. We have the answer. We can look back and say, well, of course, duh. Look at Isaiah 53. He should have figured it out. Well, he didn't have the New Testament. He didn't where figure it out. The, where was his instructor at? Gamaliel. Well, Gamaliel was was you know one of the teachers. Well, he was he was an Old Testament teacher of the law, and you got to understand what had happened to Judaism at this time. What had happened to it? So it evolved into something that the rabbis. It evolved into something that didn't even remotely represent what God had originally given. Well, no, the Romans could have cared less what they believed. The Romans controlled who was high priest and who wasn't. They didn't care about the theology. The theology of Judaism had so deteriorated that it, that it evolved into something that didn't represent God's original intent. And how do you know that? Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said by them of old time, but I'm telling you what God originally intended was... If you look on a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery. If you hate your brother, that's the same as killing him. And if you swear by anything else, that's your word should be yes or no. Anything else is sin. You've heard the rabbis tell you this, but I'm telling you what God originally intended, what God originally meant by his law. And see, they had totally missed it. Because what had they done? They had reduced the law to a list. They reduced it to a list. They were like little kids. What do little kids know? They know rules, don't they? Are your children, if you have really little kids, really little kids really want to make mom and dad happy? They want to do things to make mom and dad happy? No. It's not in their nature. What do they want to do? What they want to do? Now, once in a while, they might accidentally, you know, but but the point is, you know, they're not saying, you know, you don't have your five-year-old or eight-year-old saying, you know, I'm going to take this garbage out because dad's worked all day. It's kind of hard, you know, for him to come home and do all this. I'm going to take the garbage out and help dad out. And, you know, I really appreciate what he does for me. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, yeah, you, your son would need therapy of that because most of them don't, right? I mean, most most kids don't. And what it, what the Jews had done is they had reduced the relationship to God, which is really what God's after, right? What is God after? A relationship. They had reduced the relationship to a whole bunch of rules, thinking that if they did the rules, they they were making God happy. And the more rules they did, the happier God was. And they patted themselves on the back about how godly they were because of all the little rules that they kept. And they missed the relationship. Protestantism has been evolving 
since this came about too, since its inception, where do you think it's going? Where do you see us today as compared to where we were 150, 200 years ago? Protestantism or, or evangelicalism or whatever? Yeah. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians. Yeah. I've never been I've never been asked that question before. Sort of an interesting well, question to think about. about. How you know Judaism had evolved into nothing more than a set of rules. I, I think what we're in right now too. I, I think what is happening, for example, okay. I remember when I was young in a church to be a Baptist. There were rules. There were work. There were real rules. Real. They were here. Right. And today, even they. I think. I think what has happened, if you if if you really stop and think about it, what has happened to Christianity as a whole is that it has devolved into a religion of personal experience. All right, which is the opposite of the rules. You know, on one hand, Judaism had 600 and 700 rules that you kept that defined your relationship to God today you define your relationship to God on a very individual individualized basis so your relationship to God is something that you define different than anyone else defines it's a personal thing and the danger with that is that when you go so far down that path you lose truth Truth no longer matters. Truth is not important. Um, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily pick on the, the charismatic movement too much. But that's one of the dangers that they have fallen into. That that to them, their their relationship to God is based on an experience and on an emotional feeling. Which although there's certainly uh, an emotional component to our faith. They're, they they go beyond that, all right, to to almost um, where the, the scripture doesn't matter. It's my relationship that matters. And there's really a downplay in, in some areas of the charismatic circles. There's a downplay on the word of God. And the, the statement they use is, well, the spirit, uh, the letter kills and the spirit gives life. You know, you're too much into the Bible. You're too much into the Word. You got to get away from that into the Spirit and get freed. All right, and and that's that that that's that's one form of it in the charismatic um, movement. The other one is the emergent church movement that we see, where it's just like your 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 relationship to God is something that you define, and I have no right to tell you whether it's valid or not. I have no right to to judge your relationship with God. And I remember, you know, I, I used the illustration. MacArthur was on a, um, uh, a radio talk show with a lady out in Los Angeles who has a Christian radio talk show. And they were talking about the gospel. And somebody called up and says, well, what do you need to do to be saved? And he gave them the gospel, you know, the need to recognize you're a sinner and that God provided the way, you know, what we would recognize as the gospel. And he said on off air, the lady who was doing the, radio program said well you don't you're, you're, you don't have to believe all that do you to be a Christian 
And he said, well, how, how are you a Christian? He said, well, you know, I was into drugs. I was, in a, I was into living my own life, doing my own thing. One day I got Jesus' phone number. We've been connected ever since. <laughs> Literally, that's what she said. And it's like, well, what do you mean you got Jesus' phone number? What does that mean that you? But see, in that thinking, her experience is a perfectly valid experience. And if I would come along and say, well, that's not what the Bible says. It's like, you know, go away because what the Bible says is irrelevant. I have an experience. I've got Jesus' phone number. All right. And so what we've done is, is, is the scripture has lost its primacy. And where our relationship to God is based not on truths of scripture, but on an emotional experience, a feeling, our spin on reality, our view of reality, has become an individualistic thing. This in general, are you saying? In general. Of the Christian church? In general Christianity. You see, when you talk about Christianity, that, that's that's everybody. No. His true church. His true church is different. True church is different. Don't get The true church is different. The world church. All right. But when you look at what passes for Christianity today, all right. Um, and and I, I, I'm not trying to pick on the charismatic um, persuasion, but that's rife in some areas of the charismatic movement. You look at TBN and just about everything on there is based on somebody's experience. Some guy gets on and talks about his experience of being given a tour of hell. Well, how do you how do you deal with that? This guy says God showed up and gave me a tour of hell and his tour of hell doesn't at all square with what's in scripture, but he's some great, wonderful Bible teacher now. Another guy got a trip to heaven, you know, and what, what has happened is that is that um, my my um, I want to call it my spiritual my, my theology is formed in, in many circles, not by the word of God, but by an experience I've had or some idea I've had, or a supposed vision I've had. And when that vision doesn't square with Scripture, it's irrelevant because my vision is is the authority. If, that, am I, if I'm making any sense there. There's a Mormon in New Jersey somewhere that's running, and I thought about, I wonder if he, if he has made it to the temple. Don't know. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. But 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 one of the dangers, you know, and that's one of the things that we need to fight against as Christians is, you know, our faith, a relationship with God should be an emotional thing. Right. You should have a love for God. You should you should enjoy fellowship with God. There is an emotional component, but it's based in the truth of the word of God. It's not based apart from the word of God. And when you ask somebody, say, are you a Christian? Say, well, you know, I got Jesus phone number. And we're just connected. And they have no concept of what the gospel is or who Jesus is. They're just, they're being deceived. They're, they're being led astray. And, and you see that. And, and I think that's part of this whole postmodernism notion, right? What is postmodernism? Postmodern basically says truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. If there was, you couldn't find it. So what's true to you may not be true to me. 
and you have your spin on truth and I have my spin on truth. And the worst possible thing I could do is tell you that you're wrong. Because what, what gives me the right to tell you that your view of reality is not correct? The Bible says there is a truth. There is a truth. And whatever relationship we have to God is based in what the Bible says about it. You don't come to God any other way than through Jesus Christ. You don't. It's a hate crime these days to say that. Yeah, it is. There are some places where it's a hate crime. To actually tell somebody, you know, who's who's a homosexual, you're wrong. That's a hate crime. You know. And what do you expect from the world, right? What do you expect? And what do we see happening in our in our in our own country? We see this 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 culture war going on where you've got one side that anything goes and and and, and you know you can you can be free to believe anything, just don't tell anybody they're wrong. And then the other side that has morals and foundation and, and truth and you see this battle going on. And you see it being fought out in Congress, you know. Um, and unfortunately, what's happening in the world is leaking into the church. And there are people that go to this church that have their own individualistic view of whatever. And you try to bring them to the word of God and says, well, that's I don't care what the word says. I had an experience. This is my feeling. And my my view of this is as valid as your view of this. And how dare you have the audacity and the arrogance to say that you're right and I'm wrong. But if you have never experienced it, then how are you going to uh, tell them that they're, they're wrong? This is the standard. No, I'm trying to say, though, you know, just like um, Paul, he had his vision mm -hmm. with the knockdown off the court thing and all this. Now, there's multitudes of people who didn't have that didn't have that experience. Right. And Paul came to them and said, you know what? I had this experience, which I think he did. Paul mm -hmm. didn't want to be bottled in. Mm -hmm. It was like, man, they was afraid of him because he had been killing the Christians. Yeah. And this and that and this and that, you know. And the Lord had to reveal to them. Over time, over time, over time, his his... How do you want to put it? Not all of us have a Damascus Road experience. Right, that's what I'm saying. Well, my question was, is if a person is having an experience and you have never had it, then how do you know that that experience wasn't from the Lord? Because the reason why they knew is because God because, intentionally and all, revealed it right. to them and told them. All experiences, the right. That's a valid question. Mm -hmm. It's a valid question. And the answer to that is that every experience that we have, needs to be evaluated in light of the scriptures, the word of God. All right. That this is the standard. Okay. It's not to say that some of us may not have had certain experiences over others. The problem is when your experience becomes the basis for truth, apart from the scripture, now you're on you're on really thin ice. You're on really thin ice. You know. This is the foundation. So Paul had an experience, but when you look at his experience and what came out of that, it was all based on the word of God. It was not 
He did not say, well, God showed up and gave me some new doctrine that no one's ever heard of anywhere in history. You know, and that's the kind of stuff you get out of some of these places nowadays, you know, where Benny Hinn says, you know, God just revealed that he's nine members in the Trinity. You know, where'd that come from? Well, it came from, I don't know what he got it from, beets and beer, you know. Uh, another question, was there ever a prophecy uh, concerning Paul in Old Testament? No. No. The only man, the only, the only man I know of that was talked about in the Old Testament would be like John the Baptist, Christ, those two are, I mean, John is not mentioned by name, but it talks about the forerunner um, and Christ. Apostle Paul, none of the others were, were, were mentioned. Okay. But Paul, of course, here. So is that the answer to your question, Don? Yeah. It's a long-winded yeah, one. A long way around, but yeah. And, and, and all I'm saying is as Christians, let's, let's make sure where our foundation lies. All right. That's, that's, that's the necessary thing. And when someone has an experience that is contrary to the word of God, how do you evaluate that? They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Um, because the Bible is the standard, the objective. And, and that goes back to what we've done is we've created in, in many churches today a subjective truth. Whereas truth is not subjective, truth is objective. There's a basis for it. It's not found in your experiences or your notions. Okay. Um, and it says here they brought him into Damascus. And he went to Ananias. And the Lord said in a vision to Ananias, um, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So notice how bad, here, here's the thing. Paul was so bad, so, so uh, one-minded, that God had to, he had to supernaturally orchestrate the conversion of this guy. And not only that, he had to supernaturally orchestrate getting some other Christians close enough to him to find out that he was the real deal. So not only does he have to appear to Ananias in a dream, he has to appear to a Saul in a dream and hook him up. I thought that was a little humorous. I you know. Um, and Ananias said, Lord, I've heard a lot about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He said, Lord, are you sure you got the right guy? I said, this, this guy's a bad banana here. You know, what are you doing sending me over there? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, Lord, are you sure you're doing the right thing here? <laughs> I mean, I've heard about this guy. Of course, the Lord said, yes, he's a, listen, this, this is important. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul was chosen by God to do what he did. That was God's eternal plan. Did Paul have a choice? No. no. He, was elect. he was elect. And not only, here's the interesting thing. Stop and think about this. Not only was Paul elect in the salvific sense, right, to be a believer, but what he did was ordained by God. 
You ever think about that? His ministry was ordained by God from eternity past. Now stop and think about that. Have you ever thought about the possibility that not only is your salvation or was your salvation ordained by God, but maybe your ministry was ordained by God as well? That God had a plan. Now, Paul, of course, is a little different because Christ showed up personally to him. And Paul had a major role to play in the development and birth of the church and, and you know, the, the, the dissemination of Scripture. But God is basically telling Ananias, he is a chosen vessel of mine. I chose him to be a messenger to the Gentiles. That's pretty pretty heavy. Ordained comes from the Greek word, which means to mark out beforehand or determine beforehand. All right, it's not it's not that God it's not that God looked down time and saw that if he was to do this to Paul, that Paul would respond in a positive way and be what he wanted to do. That's not what it means. It means God ordained sovereignly that this man would do what he did. That he would choose and that he would be this. And God chose him. And remember, God, Christ showed that, told that to the disciples, right? You've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. How many, how many were walking with Christ when he chose these 12 guys? Well, at least 70, right? There are at least 70 of them, possibly more. And yet out of those 70 or however many there were, he chose 12 guys to be his inner circle. And of those 12 guys, he chose three of them to be the core, Peter, James, and John. And of those three, Peter was the closest one. But God chose them. They didn't choose him. And Christ, or the Lord is saying to Ananias, he's my chosen vessel. So Ananias went his way, laid hands on his eyes. Brother saw the Lord Jesus who appeared to me, to you on the road as you came and sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So Ananias puts his hands on Paul's eyes, or now saw Paul's eyes. He receives his sight, and immediately he is baptized. What is the significance of baptism? I'm identifying with the church. Was it a necessary thing? Yes. yes, it was. Because that was the public stamp of, you know, once you pass that stamp, it's sort of like signing your name on a contract, right? You get a lawyer to drop all the papers, and you have all these papers laid out, and you know what? Until you sign your name, they're just a bunch of papers. But once you sign your name, there's a legally binding concept that comes into play there. Right, John? Mm -hmm. You know, John made out my will for me. You know, and that will was until I signed it, it was paper. It was worthless. 
But once I signed it, it became binding. There was no turning back. Once you were baptized, you were, you're almost signing your name publicly that I am a member of the church. And it was a public thing. And immediately, what does he do? He starts preaching Christ that he is the Son of God. You understand something about, you, ever, you know, you look at personality types. You know what type A and type B is? You know, type B is sort of laid back, take it easy, you know, sort of go with the flow. And type A is the energetic, you know, got to go, 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 go. Well, Paul was a triple A. All right. He didn't know how to stop. He was driven. And here's a guy who is straight off a conversion experience. He's only been a Christian in a few days. And what does he begin to start doing all of a sudden? Preaching. In the synagogue of all places. Now that's not, that's like going in, that's like walking into the Mormon temple and saying Jesus is the son of God and you guys have got it all wrong and you're on your way to hell. I mean, that, you're going right to the, right to the beast on that one. And he went into the synagogue and, and all who heard were amazed. Isn't this the same guy that was coming to kill them all? What happened? Well, Saul increased all the more in strength, verse 22, and confounded the Jews who dwelled at Damascus. What does it mean? It means that he was able to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt from their own scriptures that Jesus was God, and they were confounded. The idea of confounded there, they didn't like it because their worldview was being shattered by the truth. They didn't want that shattering going on. And God was using someone that was only skilled in what they did. Yeah, they, they couldn't bamboozle this one, right? Because he was, you know, if, if he had not been a Christian, he would have been, you know, the, the, the number one, number one or number two rabbi of his day. He was Gamaliel's successor. All right. A brilliant, brilliant scholar. And he was able to run rings around these guys. They couldn't deal with him because of his, his ability. And so how did they deal with him? Let's, let's kill him. Yeah, we don't like what he says, so we'll just shut him up by killing him. It sort of reminds you of Stephen, doesn't it? Well, also because of his knowledge, he had to be an outstanding preacher, knowing everything there is to know. Well, nobody could. He, he could debate and, and and win the debate. They couldn't. They couldn't confound him. It's sort of like dealing with Christ, you know. The, you know, in, in Matthew twenty-two, when they try, when the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to trip him up, Christ just ran rings around them. You know, because because there's just there was no comparison to his intelligence, and Paul was brilliant, and now his brilliancy is energized by the Holy Spirit. Why did Christ choose Paul? I don't know, but he couldn't have picked a, probably a more eloquent person to be the preacher. And so in verse 23 and 24, they try to kill him, so they lay him down out of the night, out of the city by night in a basket. And he goes, to, huh? What did, was he upstairs? Yeah. And then they lowered him across the gate? Well, and back, you got to understand, in those days, the city of Damascus was surrounded by these high walls. The only way in or out was through the gate. 
Well, if they're going to try to kill him, where are they going to send their guys? Yeah, that's the only way in and out. So the only other way out is to be let down over the wall, get snuck out. So they snuck him out in the middle of the night. All right. Think that it happened, and if the house is built right into the wall, downstairs there's no windows, but on the third floor there's windows. So they yeah. That probably that's the window yeah. they let it out. Well, remember Rahab, right? Yeah. She lived down in those days. The city wall, you know, the back side of your house, could have been part of the city wall, you know. Um, and so they laid him out a window, and he stuck down. Um, and, and went back to Jerusalem. And he tried to join the disciples there, and they didn't believe him. Well, would you? No. Probably not. You know. But Barnabas took him and brought him to all the apostles and declared to them how he had the, seen the Lord on the road. They had spoken to him and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Here's Barnabas. He shows up again, son of consolation. What does he do? He befriends Paul and brings him in. He uh, he vouches for Paul's conversion. And it says here, he was with him at Jerusalem, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, disputed against the Hellenists, but then they attempted to kill him. So now he goes back up to Tarsus. So this is Paul is beginning to figure out what life is going to be like. You preach the gospel, they're going to try to kill you. You leave, go somewhere else. Preach the gospel, they try to kill you, go somewhere else. And that was the rest of his life. Preaching the gospel and having people wanting to kill him because of it. And then it says here in verse 31, there was a period of peace. Um, after Paul's conversion, he was the ringleader, it seems. It's sort of like once Zakawi is dead, you know, things settle down a little bit, hopefully. Or once you get Bin Laden, things settle down a little bit. Well, once you got rid of Paul, things settled down a little bit. They had peace. Um, now, the church has been scattered, right? Yeah. So they've been scattered, but there was, there was peace, and the church was able to grow a little bit because there was this time of rest. And then we have the account here of Aeneas that was healed. And again... Why was he healed? Huh? Validate the message of Peter. And then you have Dorcas restored to life. Joppa, where's Joppa? It's down on the seacoast, right? So what do you see the gospel doing here? Starting to do what? Go out. This is from Jerusalem. Lydda and Joppa are both cities outside of Jerusalem, outside of Samaria even. You're starting to see this ripple moving its way out into the world. And as it does, and Peter and the apostles do these miracles, it gives them an entree to proclaim the gospel. And what was going on in people's minds? What was it linking the God, the, these apostles to? Same miracles Jesus did. Same group. It's the same thing. And of course, everyone knew what Jesus had done. His miracle power had gone all over that country. And now when you have people coming in his name doing the same thing, it lends credence to the message of Christ. 
and the gospel. Doesn't this seem out of order? I mean, how come all of a sudden he switches to Peter, Luke, in this, in this account? Isn't it? Chrono it's chronology. It's chronological. You have this, this account of Paul here who's converted, and he's got to put that in there because it's like, where did Paul come from? Mm -hmm. Well, Paul was the one who was spearheading this great persecution that originally scattered all of the Christians, all right, after the stoning of Stephen. So you got to explain why were they scattered, what's going on. But then the focus will shift back to Peter and John because now what's happening to Paul? Paul's up in Tarsus in Antioch. And he's going to be on the shelf now for a few years while, you know, before he is called to the first missionary journey. Yeah. And so it, it comes back here to. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. All right. Um, and what you see, what you see going on here in these chapters is how the gospel is beginning to make its way outward. And as it does, the message of the apostles, this is very important, the message of the apostles is being validated by signs and miracles. All right? And why was that necessary? It was necessary to connect it to the ministry of Christ, and it was necessary to validate that what these men were saying was from God, because no one could do these miracles unless God did it. They didn't have people going around raising the dead in those days. When you put it that way, why don't we need signs and miracles today? Because we have the word of God. We have the word, but we don't have those signs and miracles that... Right. You know, those, signs, those signs and wonders and miracles, again, were temporary because what was God doing during those early years of the church? What was he revealing? It was validating this, but what was he revealing? How do I know that the books that Paul wrote are scripture? Because, oh, okay. Christ taught, let's see. I don't have it. No. Okay. How do I know that Paul was telling me the straight truth? By his miracles. Paul was able to do, Paul, Peter, these guys, performed miracles in the name of Christ, which connected them to the ministry of Christ, which connected their message to truth. As what, it's, what Nicodemus say, no man can do these miracles unless God is with him. So what it was, it was not only a validator of the message of the gospel, right? But it was a validator of the messenger who later became the author of the bulk of our New Testament. And what it did is it lent validity to the written word. Now we have the written word. Do we need the signs and wonders? No. And how do you know that that's, you can still make the case, well, okay, but how do you know that, why can't we have them today? Well, if you had signs and wonders today, just looking at the pattern of the scriptures, what would God be revealing today? New truth. Do we have new truth, new revelation? 
We got we got to we we can exegete that that passage. Um, I don't think it's talking about doing miracles. No, there. I, don't, I don't think it says doing miracles either, but I still see that there is something that as a believer can believe for. I'm not saying right. claim or give. I don't think it's right to claim or give because the Bible says that the Spirit wills. Yeah. And I believe that God will believe on different people. So people that claim gifts, me personally, I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Because you can't claim what the Holy Spirit does. Or what God does and say it's yours. Right. But what, yeah, go on. But I've seen, I've seen things where they do line up with scripture and save people, you know, pray for little kids. Sure, I mean, God and can they heal, they right? Yeah, and three weeks later, their blood counts normal and they never have to keep yeah. And a bunch of church folks went over there. And then I've been on the other end where old hospitals filled with this prayer room and they're praying and fasting. And the guy goes home. With the Lord. So you have both yeah. of those, but they're both they were both in Right. And, and and the point is the point is you you don't want to you don't want to go on one hand and say God does not do anything today. God God is incapable of healing or whatever. We don't want to say that. But when you look at the, the, the miracles, and you're gonna see this in the pat you might want to do a study through the gospel yeah, gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, and just see the miracles that Paul did, and what you see is you can graph the number. Literally, you can get a graph and you can see how they went up and they peaked at a second missionary journey where like in Ephesus, they were taking his, his sweaty, you know, handkerchiefs and healing the sick. And then it drops off until at the end of Acts, it's down to zero. You see no miracles being done by Paul. And when you look at the church history, when you look at the apostle, the apostolic history of the church through the first, second century, you can you can graph them. You can see a peak go up. And then it goes down to nothing. And by the time you hit the second century A.D., no one's doing miracles. They're just non-existent. You don't see Clement of Alexandria do them. You don't see Polycarp. You don't see Ignatius. You don't see any of these happening. And the, the question is, you have to ask, well, why is that? What caused that drop off to occur? And I think the answer to that is when you look at miracles in the Bible, miracles are there to validate the revelation that God is giving, new revelation. And what is God giving in the New Testament? The New Testament. <laughs> the new revelation. And once we have that revelation, once God, once it's written down and we have it, there's no need for the miracles to validate the messenger because the messenger has spoken. Look at the Old Testament. How many you can you can you can even graph the miracles in the Old Testament, and there are vast periods of time in the Old Testament, hundreds, even thousands of years, where you don't see an, you don't see any miracles happening, none, zero. I mean, a good example of that is when Malachi finished in 444 B.C. when he finished writing his book. When's the next miracle? Why? Not until. Well, the miracle of Christ, but the next miracle is when the angel showed up to, to Mary? No. To Elizabeth. To Elizabeth. To Elizabeth. That's the next time you know you have a you have God intervening personally in, in human history. You got four hundred and fifty years where nothing happens. 
nothing. You've got you've got you know the, the time between between Enoch, who was miraculously translated, to the time of Noah. You have no recorded miracles of any kind until God shows up to Noah. So you just you just got to make when when you look at the pattern in Scripture, the pattern is miracles are common when God is revealing divine revelation. New truth. And then it goes all the question, is there new truth that God needs to reveal that we haven't got yet? And if there is, then we would expect signs and wonders and miracles. If there isn't, then we would not expect signs and wonders and miracles because we have what God has wanted us to have. So you said all that's in our position. Yes. Well, you have to make the case that it is. I don't believe that because... You know, I, I know that every day God does something in my life in just a situation that I'm, wait a minute, I'm just okay, yeah. that I'm dealing with in my life that I know God did some miraculous thing. Oh, sure, me. sure. I'm not so discounting that. I just don't believe that miracles are inoperative today because on a personal level, the fact that you got up out your bed this morning and you still have. That's not what we're talking you know, about. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that, that I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And, you know, you don't want to believe that. That's cool. But me personally, I believe that God still performs a miracle. There's people I know. This guy, he died, he had kidney failure. All his organs started shutting down up on him in the hospital. I was there. All his organs started shutting down. They called the church people in to pray, and we came in to pray around the clock. We prayed for that four days. They had no response. He was in a coma, and they called cold blue on him three times. Now that man is walking around every day, don't have no kind of bag, uh, lots mm-hmm. bag, no kidney problem. He don't even have to have dialysis or nothing. But what I would that say. Yeah, I don't. That's not what the. That's not what we're talking about. What are you talking about? We're not talking about that. Okay, we're not talking about God not doing anything. God's an operative. God certainly is operative. You know, um, in that case, God may have responded. Obviously, He did respond in in, in response to the prayer that that man would get healed. But like He said, there's other cases where you've prayed all day long and the guy died. Right. All right. right. It's whatever God wants. But God is operative. Of course he is. Well, what are you talking about there? I'm, I'm, I'm talk, when I'm talking about miracles, I'm talking about raising the dead. I'm talking about where somebody comes in and, and, and gives a guy a leg back or an arm back or where there's an instantaneous healing like you see here in the case of this paralytic that was paralyzed for eight years. Or you see someone who's been blind all their life all of a sudden receiving sight. That's not operative today. All right. Does God work today? Of course he does. In fact, the greatest miracle is when somebody comes to know the Lord, isn't it? And that's the greatest miracle of all. So don't 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 say don't think that I'm saying that miracle I don't not miracles, but that God is not operative. Of course He is. He's operative in your life. He's operative in mine. And if He wasn't, I would fall back into the spiritual deadness that I came out of. Of course He's operative. But when you see miracles like you know 
somebody taking somebody's sweat cloth, you know, Paul's sweat cloth and taking over and laying on some guy and healing him instant. You don't see that today. Well, I mean, you don't see that in the United States, but I heard in other countries where people are like, God is doing that. Okay. And when you, and when you, but the problem is when you try to validate all that, you can't validate it. It's easy for somebody to say, well, I, I know that over in Bongo Bongo, they're doing this. Then you try to go over to Bongo Bongo and actually validate, did this happen? When, time, who was it? There, there's, there, you can't, you can't, you can't, there's no validation. It's like, uh, I think Rex Humbard said that he's, yeah, I've raised people from the dead over in Asia. They said, okay, well, let's go check it out. They went to check, they couldn't find anybody, any validatable instance of that ever happening. You know, and that's the, that's the difficulty here. All right. You don't know where he went. You know, it's all generalities and, and, and all of that. There's no, there's, and there's studies have been done on this. I'm not making this stuff up. There are people that do not believe that God cannot bring somebody back from the dead. I've seen people in hospital room, cold blue bed. They don't put, they call the family in. Now, wait a minute. If, if the guy, cold, if you're saying he, he's, he's, I'm talking about being dead for two days. No, 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 no. I mean, Dorcas here. Yeah, Dorcas here. She was dead, dead. All right. She had been dead for a half hour. You know, it's, it'd be like somebody walking into a funeral home and raising a guy out of the casket. You know, that's not happening today. You know. No, not necessarily. There's there's a period of time which they may be unconscious, and we you know you don't sort that out. Yeah. But but when when once you're dead, you're dead. All right. And and God can't you know again God can do anything He wants to do. I'm not going to say God, I'm sorry you're not allowed to do a miracle today. But when you look around, God is not doing miracles like you find in Acts. You just don't find it in spite of all the claims that people have. You can't, there is no provable, miraculous working that you see today that you see in Acts. Can God heal people in response to prayer? Sure he can. All right. But that's not how these were done. These yeah. Were certain individuals who went everywhere they went, they did something like this. This wasn't one time where they went to a hospital and someone was well see, now, because they yeah. were there because they prayed. Now, if the, now, in your case here, this guy that was in there, what, four days that you prayed for? Yeah, four days? Yeah, well, okay. What I'm talking about is you didn't have somebody from your church go in and say, brother, be healed. And the guy wakes up, puts on his clothes, and walks out perfectly healed. That's what you see in Acts. All right? What you saw in your case was God supernaturally intervening in the natural healing processes of life to bring this guy back from the edge of death. He can do that. Sure he can. God does that all the time. All right. But the but Apostle Paul could have walked in when that guy code blue or whatever, and he could have touched him and boom, he'd be he'd get out of bed, put his clothes on, and be perfectly healed and normal. You don't see that happening. So that one man that they had on TV with um what's that man that Smith Wigglesworth. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Oh, Paul, that's a chair. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. There's no proof. You can't prove that. You can't. And all I'm saying is, as a, as a Berean, as a student of Scripture, that's all I'm, all I'm suggesting. As a student of Scripture, you need to go back and say, what does the Scripture 
say. I don't care what Wigglesworth says or what any of these other guys say. They can make all kinds of claims. The point is, can they validate these claims? And when you when when people have tried to do this, they've done it with Catherine Kuhlman. They've done it with Wigglesworth. They've done it with Benny Hinn. They've done it with Rex Humbard or Roberts. When you try to validate the claims, you can't find any validations. Why aren't they documenting this? Yeah, there's no validatable things. And the apostolic gift of healing was something that did not depend on the faith of the healee. That's the first thing they tell them when they do it. They tell them to go to their doctor and have their doctor check them. Yeah, I would just challenge you to really research that, that area. And just because some guy says... Yeah, I raised five people from the dead over in Asia last week. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, I wasn't there, but I can't yeah. didn't. Yeah, I can say that it does not fit the pattern of the New Testament. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. If God gave the miraculous gift of healing to somebody today, who would he give it to? He would not be giving it to these guys. He would not have been given it. He would not give it to a man who claims that there's nine members in the Trinity. <laughs> Benny Hinn. He's not going to give it to that guy. He's not going to be giving it to guys who are making merchandise of the flock of God by having them send millions and millions and millions of dollars in for their miracle prayer clause and all that kind of rot. That's not who's going to be getting it. When you look at the character of the guys that claim the miraculous gifts, they're seedy guys. I'm sorry. They are they are hucksters. They are charlatans. You want you you don't want to you want to hold if you shake their hand, keep your hand on one hand on your wallet while you shake their hand. I'm sorry. I'm being honest about it, but I'm you look at them. Look at Jim Baker claims, you know, for his, for his. Now, he might be a Christian. He, he came around before that. The guy says, you know, send me money and get Tammy Faye up there crying. You know, God's, you know, devil's trying to shut down the ministry. Send us money. Send us money. And you find out the guy's, you know, living in these multi-million dollar palatial houses. The dog houses have air conditioning in the darn thing. The, you got gold plated faucets. You got Rolls Royces. You got and you sit there and say, is that a man of God? Now, that should be a no-brainer. No. If Christ was around today, would he be tooling around in a Rolls Royce? I don't think so. He would not be tooling around in a Rolls Royce. He would not have gold on his hands. He would not... When he when he was here, when he was here before, what did? Well, he didn't even have his own. He didn't have his own mule to ride. He had to borrow some. He had to borrow another guy's car to get into town. You know. No, the point. Is, yeah, here's here's the point. The point is. Believers, one of the things, one of the primary, here, here's, here, I'm sorry we're getting on this, but it's important. One of the primary characteristics of an elder, which is a shepherd, is what? Humility. Humility. He is not to be a lover of money. One more. All right. 
He's got to be a one-woman man, not to be a lover of money, all right? Not to love filthy lucre, it calls for. It even says that the love of money is the root of all evil. He rules well his own house. And I'm saying when you, when you take the characteristics of the elder as found in in 1 Timothy and Titus and you and you 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 compare it to the character of a Benny Hinn or an Oral Roberts or a Rex Humbard I'll tell you what they they don't rate they fail so if they drive anything what can they drive in? it's irrelevant what they drive I it's mean, you it's say the, to me, if they have a beautiful home cars and houses all that then they tell them they they, they are wanting you they want you to send money in to their organization to promote their ministry at the same time they're walking they're driving million dollar living in million dollar houses driving three hundred thousand dollar cars having gold silver everything else all the all the trappings of wealth and they're wanting you to send money in to their ministry all right. It's not it's not that God does not want you to have night. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that these guys are making merchandise of people. Bob Tilton took it. He Somebody said in his heyday, he was taking in half a million dollars a day. Can you imagine that? Half a million dollars a day. And what, what did he preach? Send me a hundred dollars. God will give you a thousand. I remember when they. He was on the jet. And what, yeah. What's that one? The CBS. They, they caught him. Yeah. They caught him on the jet. And it was like a regular. These guys. Say, what you think about him? Yeah, he, bo he bothers me too. Ernest Angley. <laughs> Ernest Angley. Here, here's the point, folks. Here's the point. Okay. Paul. <laughs> yeah, Ernest Angley. When Paul preached, did Paul go around driving a gold-plated chariot? No. no, he walked. What did he have on his back? That was his clothes. He did not. He was not a wealthy person. He, he did not have. He worked as a tent maker to not only provide his meal but the meal of those who were around him. He dared not take a dime from the churches, so no one could say he was in it for the money. All right. And if that is the character of the person who is preaching today, that's the character of a man of God. When you have somebody today who is living an, an extravagant, lavish lifestyle, somehow promoting that as godly, wanting little old ladies who can barely make their buy their food to send them money to promote it, there's something wrong. I think Billy Graham's the standard for that. He has so much that he gives them what it is for a living expenses. That's all he gets every year. Go bright when when they when this whole thing of the Baker scandal came out. Bill Bright Bill Bright put his uh, his tax return out. He made twenty thousand dollars a year. Now this is a guy that's head of Campus Crusade for Christ International. And he was making twenty thousand. I think Billy Graham was seventy, and then these other guys are way up there. I think Billy made seventy thousand. I think that was his total income for the entire year. They're not living lavish. They're not driving around in Lear jets with a, with an entourage of personal servants and all that kind of stuff. That's not what the gospel is about, folks. That's not what it's about. And and all you need to do is look at the character 
of the promulgators of this stuff. And when I look at an Oral Roberts who is interested in building massive monuments to himself and amassing a fortune and talking about miracle power and send me money and, you know, don't let the devil take down my ministry. It's like, let him take down the ministry. That's not a ministry. The, the gospel that they're presenting there is a gospel of prosperity and wealth. And God wants you wealthy and wants you well and wants you. Folks, that, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I'm sorry, it is. That's the gospel of the Pharisees who thought godliness was great gain. The Pharisees thought that. They fought, they, their idea was if you were wealthy, that was God's blessing on you. And the more wealthy you were, the more godly you were. And that's not what it's all about. You know, so when I look at these guys who talk about having miracle power, and I, I look at their life that, that is characterized by greed. And I'll tell you, if you want to read their character, just read Second Peter chapter 2. That's them. Their lives are characterized by greed, by lust, by, by their, an ego, by a lack of integrity, a lack of accountability. And when anybody questions anything, they, they talk about how God's going to judge and kill that person for even daring question what they have to say. That's not a man of God. I'm sorry. That is not a man of God. That's not what Christ is all about. Christ did not come. What did he say? I did not come to be served, but to serve. And when you have a man who wants to be served, you've got a problem. I'm, I'm, you look at the New Testament. It's, the, the apostles were not wealthy guys. They weren't. Christ did not have a place to lay his head. You know, I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm getting into pre I'm getting into a little bit of preach mode here. Not preach mode, but I'm passionate here because look at the character. You've got people who are who are flaming heretics. I mean, when you look at the theology of some of them, Kenneth Copeland, who says that Jesus is not divine. He even said that Jesus never claimed to be God. Of course he did. Yes. I don't listen to him. Well, that's good you don't listen to him. He said Jesus appeared to him. He had Jesus physically appear to him and claim that he never claimed to be God. Jesus, he said, I had Jesus appear to me, and he told me he never claimed to be God. He just that he knew God and walked with him. He denies the deity of Christ. Now, if you deny the deity of Christ, are you a true representative of God? All right, so you don't need to worry about ben, uh, Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Hagin is just as bad. Same thing. Benny Hinn, nine members in the Trinity. Okay, you can discount Benny Hinn. Frederick Casey Price, who got mad at his congregation because when they gave him a Rolls Royce, it was the wrong color. He made him take it back. He's the same same ilk. These people are heretics. Why do you even Why do you even listen to them? <laughs> How could Jesus appear to Copeland if he wasn't if, if he's dead? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, the, the problem is that they have a form of godliness. They're going to be the guys in Matthew 7. Did we not? They said, I don't know who you are. I have no idea who you are. And um, you, you have it today. And by the way, what would say... 
<laughs> I wonder. I really do want to know. When I, if if you if you want to know who I would follow, I follow someone whose character matches the character as found in the Word of God when it comes to to their to their ministry. The character matches the the, the prescriptions laid down in Timothy and Titus. I look at a you know example. I look at a John MacArthur. I'm sorry. I he's yeah. But but I, I I've heard I've heard enough of his messages, thousands of them. I know what, the way his character. His character is an open book, I think and and he is not in it for the money. He's not in it. I I listened to Grace to You, his radio program, for thirty years, and I can count on my hand, my one hand, the number of times they've even mentioned sending them any money for support. In 30 years. What about that Shepherd Chapel guy? Who's that? Uh, the guy that runs the Shepherd Chapel. What's his name? Uh, Don't know. You don't ask for money? Yeah. The one so if you don't ask for money, he cool? It's more than that. Oh. It's more than What I'm saying is examine their character. That's all I'm saying. Examine the person's character. When you, when you look, look at their lifestyle, is their lifestyle one of lavish, an ostentatious, lavish lifestyle where they are trying to promote a godliness that is based on wealth and possessions and not on Christ. So what about Joyce Myers? Joyce Myers is charismatic. I, I have a difficulty with her. She's got some misguided Jesus Yeah. I don't know her as well as some of the others, um, but, but she's in the, the Copeland, Hagen area. I found that it takes time, though, to before you follow some of these people, you need to really get to see their ministry over a, a period of time because people tend to change. Right. They may start out well, and then you notice little things here and little things there. But a person that we should be looking up to or following their teaching needs to be someone who's taught the same thing for years and years and years who follow the word, who you don't see um, big uh, things in their messages that conflict with mm -hmm. what you see in that word, too. And it just is a, mostly a matter of using common sense, which doesn't fit with your No. You look at a person's character. Does their life match what the character of a godly Christian is? If it doesn't, there's a problem. I'm saying when you look at a lot of these guys, when you look at a Benny Hinn and some of these guys who are heretical in their beliefs to start out with, that's a sure dead giveaway. But who live these these lifestyles are basically promoting the concept that godliness is great gain. Paul says, from such, turn away. Don't go near them. Because they're not preaching the truth. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.